Sometime back, I received, in the name of our country, the bodies of four Marines who had died while on active duty. I said then that there is a special sadness that accompanies the death of a serviceman, for we're never quite good enough to them. Not really, we can't be, because what they gave us is beyond our powers to repay. And so when a serviceman dies, it's a tear in the fabric, a break in the hole, and all we can do is remember. It is, in a way, an odd thing to honor those who died in defense of our country, in defense of us, in wars far away. The imagination plays a trick. We see these soldiers in our mind as old and wise. We see them as something like the founding fathers, grave and gray-haired. But most of them were boys when they died, and they gave up two lives, the one they were living and the one they would have lived. When they died, they gave up their chance to be husbands and fathers and grandfathers. They gave up their chance to be revered old men. They gave up everything for our country, for us. We owe them a debt we can never repay. All we can do is remember them and what they did and why they had to be brave for us. Jesus, I just ask now that wherever we are and whatever place we are, as we come into this Memorial Day weekend, as we take a moment, maybe hopefully many moments, and we think about the lives of men and women that have been given up in the defense of some amazing ideas as a nation some amazing constructs that are really different than a lot of other places in the world. God, I just ask that you would help us to make a place as we truly celebrate Memorial Day. Maybe we're going up to the lake and we're getting out for the first time in many, many weeks. We're starting to come out, do things. I just ask God that as we go and as we do this weekend and maybe this would be a different memorial day one where we take some time to truly commemorate truly remember and to let that remembrance change us in the best possible ways and direct us towards you gotta give you all the next few minutes together thank you for who you are Thank you, God, that you were the ultimate soldier for us. And now, Lord, I just pray, be here. Give me the words to communicate your heart. Give those who are listening, wherever they are, in whatever space, the time and the ability and the attention to hear and to grow. I pray these things in your name, Jesus, your mighty name, amen. Well, hey, Impact, welcome. Welcome to uh, Band Together, uh, God's Country 
version. This is the weekend that we are this weekend. We're going to look at banding together as a country and we're going to take it even further than that. We're going to look at what we are called uh, as citizens of the kingdom of God to be and to do. I thought Memorial Day, what an awesome opportunity to express as a people our gratitude for the lives that have been given that we may continue to live as a people and as a nation. I just want you to know as we get started, even those of you who may not be part of our church regular and you're just tuning in, uh, my name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Impact and I love our country. I love these United States. I believe in so many of the values that we hold deal, of the lofty ideals that we believe in as a nation. And I think it's critical that we go beyond that as followers of Jesus and we ask the question, what does it look like to be part of the kingdom of God through time and the, the ages and around the entire world and as a globe? So that's what we're gonna do today. And I wanna give you a couple of, of just factoids to get started that pertain to Memorial Day. And the first is just this, many of you don't maybe know this, it came as a holiday. Memorial Day finds its origin, its roots in the Civil War. The Civil War was one of the, actually the bloodiest, the greatest loss of lives of any war that we have ever had as a nation. We lost 618,000 uh, soldiers to the Civil War. I want to talk just a little bit more about that in a second, but it was it was a war that had uniquely and distinctly different views of the same idea, freedom, which we're gonna get into in just a second. And I wanna, I wanna start by setting up some kingdom of these United States ideals that we believe in and that for centuries we have held dear, even though we maybe haven't succeeded in actually living these ideals out. And the first is this, uh, the, the U.S.'s traditional motto has been e pluribus unum, which means out of many one. So this idea of all different unique viewpoints and ethnicities and people groups and ideas coming together and unifying as one, that's an awesome uh, uh, built into the fabric of us as a nation. The second, um, after that traditional motto, we actually in the 1900s, we voted in our official motto, which is in God we trust or Deo Confidimus, which is as a follower of Jesus, something I'm extraordinarily grateful for in our nation that we believe in God we trust in the creator God as a nation we can come together under that idea. Another one is equal value or the intrinsic worth of the individual. Now, this gets a little bit dicey for us. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But it is the idea that no one is born worth, automatically worth more than someone else, that someone's value is determined, I would argue this, by the image of God that is stamped over them, that that is the critical 
critical defining feature. Nobody gets to set themselves up as worth more than anyone else because God himself has put his imprint over us and declared our value. Doesn't mean equal access, unfortunately. We've worked towards equal opportunity as a nation. There's been times we've attained it and times we have not. And then the last is liberty for all. And it's on that um, stepping stone that I wanna move into the, the, the kingdom of God, hear, hear this, the kingdom of God holds these truths to be self-evident. So the first of four principles we're gonna talk about as citizens of the kingdom of God today is the principle of freedom. Now, we get this idea of liberty um, and, and, and we, we wrestle with that and we get it wrong in certain decades and epochs of our history as a nation. The Civil War is a great example. Now. As a nation, the, 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 the fight was over the idea of freedom. Now, many of you might be like, what do you mean? I mean, one group wanted freedom, the other group didn't. Not, not so true, not so fast. Actually, if you talk to anyone in the union at the time of the Civil War, they would have said, we're fighting for the emancipation of the slaves. We're fighting against egregious racism that takes an entire people group, an entire ethnicity, and it subjugates them to a different race totally wrong, we want to free them. We want to liberate them from their bondage. But if you had talked to a Confederate, one of the Confederate uh, states, you would have heard actually an argument from freedom as well. Their argument would have been, we're fighting for the freedom of the state to make its own decisions and not to have to listen to a unified government. Now, I think we know where we fall, which side of that we fall, at least where the church falls historically as to which side was right or wrong, certainly the unions and emancipation. But isn't it interesting that mankind doesn't quite grasp or understand what freedom really is. I wanna look to the scriptures now and I wanna take just a second and pull apart this principle of freedom from Galatians chapter five. And it's just a short verse, but it's power packed. It says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now get this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. That can seem like a cyclical idea, but I think it's critical that we understand right here, we are given a, a clear demonstration that God created mankind, the individual, to be free. And that comes as an autonomy that when he shaped Adam and Eve and he breathed into them his spirit, that he gave them autonomous ability to choose. So he is pulling back his hand and he is saying, you, my finest creation, you have the ability to choose. And that choice is your freedom. But here's the problem. In Inside governmental structures, all through the ages, we see different levels of subjugation. We see different levels of freedom. We, we, see, we see different levels of slavery. We see freedom inhibited in different environments. Now, what we're gonna see in the scriptures is just this, that Christ came to set us free from the burden of sin, that that is ultimate freedom. And here's the deal. We are either as a, crea as a creature, 
created by God. We're either gonna serve ourselves. we're gonna choose to, to be self-servient, to be selfish, to do everything in life for ourselves and to rebel against God, or we're going to choose to give our life to God. We're going to choose to lay down actively to submit our will to him. And that when we do that, Christ has set us free from from the burden or the weight of sin. That, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, is this extraordinary victory that we can have as followers of Jesus, every day choosing Christ, not then to be subjected to the, to the ugliness and the, the anger and the lust and the um, pain and the things that happen when we serve ourselves principally. See, love and Christ's life bring us his, his death and his resurrection freedom so that we can live forward in all the goodness and the glory that God intended us to have. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free, not to be bound or yoked or burdened or to be in bondage again. And then the verse goes on and says, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now this moves us into the, the, the next principle, which is the principle of bravery. This is the kingdom of God holds these truths to be self-evident, the principle of bravery. Now I think the idea of bravery has come under a whole lot of attack lately because it's associated with risk maybe, or it's associated with courage. And right now those words are again under tension amidst our society. What does it mean to be brave? What does it mean to be safe? What does it mean to, to risk? What does it mean to, uh, to be secure? So I wanna unpack this principle of bravery. I wanna say for us to stay free from the burden of sin and to walk fully as God intended in, the king, in his kingdom, as his citizens, we have to be people of bravery. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says this, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men or women of courage, be strong, the apostle Paul exhorts us. Now, coming off of the verse just before it, for his freedom we have been set free, stand firm. There is this, there is this crucial uh, calling as a follower of Jesus that we are compelled to take our next step and our next step toward what God is calling us into. And it's often risky. It often requires, when we get up in the morning, sin is crouching by our door, ready to attack again. There's no way in this life that we can just sort of say, oh, I don't have to stand firm. I don't have to fight my sin nature anymore. I don't have to um, um, just be done with that and, 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 and not have to actually move into conflict because that sin nature, our selfishness rises back up and it wants to take over. We have to, we have to embrace bravery as part of the kingdom of God, being willing to risk, 
taking courage and moving forward in courage. And it's not just for us that we do this. See, this is why it's critical. If we are gonna pattern our life after our rescuer, Jesus himself, after the one who gave everything for us to be set free, to liberate us, and to walk in this newness of life that he offers, if we're gonna do that, we actually have to become like him and move into risking our lives for the lives of others, just like the soldiers that we celebrate on Memorial Day. Matthew eleven twelve says this, get this passage, from the days of John the Baptist until now. John the Baptist would have been the point at which all of history pivots, all of history changes, the very calendar changes uh, because this is the time of Christ. From the days of John the Baptist until now, right now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it, why? Why? Because there will be resistance. There will be resistance from inside ourselves in that rebellion that is embedded in us until we see Jesus face to face. We have to battle that. We actually have to fight against other people, sometimes for other people, to help them take steps closer and closer in relationship to him. And if we're gonna move into society and not just individually, but see systems changed for the goodness and the calling of Jesus on our life, if we're gonna be about bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, we're going to experience danger. We're going to experience situations where we have to risk sometimes up to our life for other people to see them redeemed and rescued. And here's the deal. It's, it's the, it, unfortunately, here's where there's a clear line of distinction between the world's version of bravery and the kingdom of God's version of bravery, if you're a follower of Jesus. The world's version of bravery is most often selfish. There's not largesse in the world's version of bravery. It usually is, I'll be brave for what I can get out of it. That is not the case in the kingdom of God. In, in the kingdom of God, our version of bravery is for someone else. Our version of bravery, what God has called us to do is not selfishness, is not boasting, is not self-seeking, it's not proud, it's, it's, a, it's a pursuit of actually laying down our life so that someone else can scaffold on our life and be lifted closer to Jesus. So it is a self-sacrificing kind of bravery. This forceful kingdom elevates, it elevates. This kingdom elevates the oppressed at the expense of the citizen of the kingdom of God. That means we give so that someone else can be lifted towards Jesus. And that brings us to the next principle is the principle of service. And you hear this, our, our military are called service men and women. And the principle of service actually, I would argue, comes straight out of 
God's word to us. It is Jesus' life that for the first time in history changed everything and demonstrated that leadership is built on giving of ourselves, of serving or self-sacrifice. Check out Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. Look at this verse. It's tucked in. Uh, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. So you linked arms with the oppressed. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Listen, Hebrews as a book spends all the first 10 chapters until this little note describing our high priest, Jesus, and how even from the position of high priest, the the esteemed position, the position that would always be the top dog, that, that he as our high priest actually flipped the script, reversed the order, and gave his own life as a ransom for us, his own life as a sacrifice. And then in this nugget, in the 10th chapter of Hebrews, it called, it, it, it gives us a lens to see how people, follow, early followers of Jesus, our people, these are our people, were actually living like their high priest in giving of themselves to rescue people. So they're using their freedom, they're using their bravery, these principles of the kingdom of God, and they are willing because of those things that Jesus has brought them, they are willing to joyfully accept the confiscation of their property, that they're suffering, they're being chased, they're being treated like thieves and every kind of criminal. This is an extraordinary depiction of what the early church saw as their responsibility to to, to serve and to sacrifice themselves for others. I mean, truthfully, This is where I think it's just fascinating that we'll often emphasize as the church, and this is true, uh, Jesus' greatest command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and and, and mind and strength, and love your neighbor. In fact, right out on the front of our building right now, we've got a banner that says, love your neighbor. And that is part of the greatest commandment. What a lot of us like to do is skip over that Jesus explicitly told us as if loving our neighbor isn't hard enough. You know, the people we like, the people that are close to us, the people already in our circle. If that's not hard enough, and it is, if you're anything like me, then Jesus goes on in passages like Matthew 6, and he says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. That's otherworldly. That's supernatural. That is phenomenal. It's extraordinary largesse, which is this this idea of graciousness and magnanimity to someone else who, who doesn't deserve it, someone else who doesn't like you, someone else who might be uh, making your life difficult on purpose, someone else who doesn't agree with you in any way. In fact, they're on the, they're on the prowl. They're on the hunt for you. They're, they're disagreeing with you at every turn. They're mocking you in public. They're maybe shaming you or embarrassing you. That, that person, that enemy, Jesus is like, don't, 
Don't, don't hate them. Don't hate them. Love them. Do good to those who despitefully use you. Pray for those who persecute you. It's, it's, almost, it's almost too much to bear to be in the citizen of heaven, to, to be a citizen of heaven, to be in the kingdom of God as a follower of Jesus and to hear those words. As a matter of fact, when Jesus spoke those words, that was a tipping point for many of his earlier followers. Okay, we can't, we can't do that. We can't abide by that. We can try to love our neighbor. Are you kidding me? Actually love our enemy? It's a powerful and upside down kingdom teaching of Jesus. And here's why, this is back to the image of God. Because all of the people, whether it's a coworker you don't like that doesn't like you, and you guys have been competing or fighting for the same position or trying to one up the other, or whether it's an ex-fiance, even an ex-spouse, all these different places uh, that we want to say, well, I've been wronged and that person actually deserves um, retribution for what they did to me. When Jesus said, I, I, I tell you, love your enemy. The reason he does it is this, because that enemy is also in the image of God. They are also a creation by God. They are loved by God. He wants to reach them. When the church starts living like this, it flips whole communities upside down in the best possible way. It shakes the world and it draws people to the truth and the veracity of Jesus himself. Now, the, the, the last principle is the principle of oneness. And, um, and that comes directly out of Jesus' prayer for us as the church. But I wanna remind you now, as we're comparing kingdom of the United States to kingdom of heaven, that e pluribus unum, or out of many, one, is literally pulled straight out of John chapter 17. This is Jesus' final prayer request, okay? This is where Jesus said, in the principle of oneness, look, look at this. My prayer is not for them alone, not just for his immediate followers. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you so that they may be brought to complete unity. Look at this. As the Father and the Son are one, the most extraordinary and beautiful uh, uniting that we, even imagery that we can even comprehend um, that as the Father and the Son are one, that they may have that complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is Jesus' prayer request. Um, and really, as far as his crying out to God, it's just, just an amazing imagery that the Son of God would cry out to God on our behalf as the church and say, look, I need you, Lord. Make them one. This is what all the fabric of the church will be held to, together by. The kingdom of God will be demonstrated by this uniting of so many different perspectives. And just in case, 
you're thinking to yourself, oh, that's wonderful, you know, honky-dory, lovey-dovey, hippie commune, that that's kingdom of God thinking. It's not the case at all. In fact, I want you, uh, here's a passage from Galatians chapter three that we're gonna dig into for just a second. Um, There is, he's talking to the church in, in Galatia. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this teaching is absolutely mind-blowing. Listen to me. At this point that Paul is writing this, these ideas were as far apart, these people groups, as far apart as you can fathom. The Jews had their clean and unclean, their circumcised and uncircumcised. They had their, they had their law. They had their moral responsibility. They had their code all laid out, 600 specific ways to, to live legally inside of of the Israelite faith. And the Greeks had no, they they had no comprehension. The Gentiles had no idea of of like how to live that way. It seemed absolutely goofy to them. They're they're the dirty, they're the reprobate. They, They don't know anything about the Hebrew faith. And for them to come together inside the, the, the construct of the church or the kingdom of God and to unite with so many different um, unique points of view and so many different opinions about how to live and so many different traditions, um, there, the, it, w- it would have caused the world to be like, what is going on? How are Jews, Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles coming together under the, the, the mantra of the church? Slave nor free. Now, to understand that, uh, back to the Civil War, our version of slavery here in the United States was racially based slavery. That was not the case in the, er- the time of the early church. In the early church, slave or free was based on indebtedness or financial ruin. So if you owed me something and you couldn't pay back or you couldn't quite cover the interest, you weren't even touching the principal, at some point I would have the ability to go to your house, grab two of your kids and enslave them or go to your house, take your wife and enslave or you even sometimes and enslave you and you would then live a life subject to me because you could not repay the debt. So take your house, take a couple of your kids. This was the version of slavery. It elevated the noble and the wealthy and it subjugated or it, or it oppressed the poor and it oppressed um, uh the, the commoner, there was no value for them. And then male or female, I'm telling you, in a world where this kind of slavery existed, women were the, they were the lowest of the low. They had absolutely no power, no ability to make their own livelihood, no ability to have wealth. They were utterly dependent on men. And for Paul in the early church to hearken back to the teaching of Jesus and say, nah, No, no, there is now no male or female. You cannot establish a value judgment of of a person's worth based on whether they are male or female was just amazing. I wanna tell you this story. About 45 years after Paul was executed by Nero, 
uh, there was a, a governor in the moder modern day area of Turkey who sat under Emperor Trajan, who was the Roman emperor at the time. And this guy's name was Pliny. And I don't know why, but it was Pliny the Younger, probably some version of, you know, uh, Pliny the Second or Pliny the Junior, however that worked back in their day and age. So Pliny the Younger is the governor of Turkey and he gets this uh, communication from Emperor Trajan. Remember, 45 years after Paul is killed, Christians are being persecuted. They're actually being blamed by the Roman Empire. All of the Roman Empire's eye has moved to them and there's all these headlines in the news and all the headlines are bad news and they're all blaming the Christians, this kingdom of God for the bad things that are beginning to happen in Rome. Rome as an empire was starting to deteriorate and fall apart and the Christians were at the ire of all the people of Rome because they claimed these Christians were doing things that were angering the gods. And I want you to understand this, this governor, this this Pliny fellow, he looks around him and he's like, I, I know I've just been told to round up the Christians. I know I've just been told to pull the church together and start persecuting these people. But the crazy thing is, I'm not sure what they've done wrong. As I look at just the little bit that I know about them, and it's only a little bit, they don't seem like all that bad a people. They don't seem like criminals. But you know what I'll do? I will be a good governor and I'll, I'll actually, I'll interrogate them and I'll figure out for the emperor what's really going on inside this Nazarene sect, this cult called Christianity. I'll, I'll dig into that. I'll figure out what's happening. And so he does. Pliny gathers up, starts rounding up Christians. He sends some spies into their midst, into the church gathering, and they're bringing back intel to him. And then he actually tortured a few Christians, you know, just to say, um, I don't believe that that's all you're doing. So put them on the rack, stretch them a little more. Yep, still, you know, that's still your claim. And he, he does his research so that he can say to the emperor Trajan, here's what I found out. And it's crazy what he discovered. There's a letter that he wrote to Trajan and it's been preserved and we still have it. Look, look at this letter. They asserted, these would be the Christians, However, that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. Now, it's fascinating. I want you as the church, as a citizen of the kingdom of God now, inside the church, as you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to think about what would happen if I said, we're going to gather on Monday morning because the calendar is totally different at this time, right? There is no Sunday. There's no one day a week of Sabbath or rest. There's no church day. You just have to gather when you can. So if I said Monday morning, we're going to gather before work. So it's going to be 5.30 a.m. And we're going to all come together and we're going to sing hymns. I want you to ask yourself how into the kingdom of God you would be if that was the case and we move on here. And they would, and to bind themselves or promise by oath. Ooh, here's where we must be getting to something. You just see Trajan reading the letter. Yep, the oaths. Here we go. These guys are bad news. By oath not to do some crime. Huh. So not to do a crime. But not to commit fraud. Oh, wait, so they're binding themselves 
not to defraud others, not to cheat, not to be dishonest, or theft. Oh, (laughs) that's nice. Or adultery, not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. So we're going to be honest. We're not going to steal. We're not going to commit sexual sin. We're not going to violate our neighbors or anyone else and take their wife or their husband. We're not going to falsify trust. In other words, our word is going to matter. If we say we're going to do something, we're actually going to do that. And and we're we're not going to refuse to return a trust. You know, you know what that is? That's to, to favor someone, to give someone a favor. We're going to, when called upon, we're going to do our best to react to that need. And you can just see Pliny and Trajan, wait, wait a minute. So, so what's going on here? Pliny would have been thinking, listen, uh, Emperor Trajan, I'm finding that I have to arrest, torture, kill some of the finest people in my community some of the most upstanding community leaders, some of the most prosperous, some of the ones who are literally bringing about life and prosperity to the region that I govern. Do you want me really to, 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 to take this as the, as the criminal behavior that we're going to punish? It goes on, when this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent food, they ate together. They fellowshiped. You know what's incredible here? That this idea from Galatians, there is now neither Jew nor Greek. There is now neither male nor female. There there is now neither um, slave nor free is happening in real life 45 years later. Church, these are our people. This is what we are supposed to look like to the world around us when we are freed by Christ to live fully under his mantle and authority, when we are brave and we take risks and we move forward under the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. This was an extraordinary calling and it turned all of society on its ear. We are called to be this church, to to look just like our people did 45 years after Paul was executed, to live in ways today that cause our communities around us to be like, these these people are amazing. And where we may first have heard a headline that indicates that they're all up in arms against us and they all hate us and these Christians, we should be done with them and they believe some weird things. If, If that's what people are first captivated by, they might be appalled, but you know what? After we live like this, after we get along, after we love one another and those around us that are unlovable, it, it causes people to say, wait a minute, if it, was a, if it was a first appalling, now it's appealing. And then it becomes compelling. And once that e pluribus unum, that out of many one begins to center and people start to see that kind of oneness that's so attractive and love for each other and care for each other and sharing for each other. Reaching out to help everywhere we can in our community. It not only becomes compelling, but it becomes contagious. 
It becomes something that spreads and people want to hear who our Lord and King is. In fact, uh, 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson summed it up beautifully when he said this, and I, I want to read this to you. He said, Christianity achieved the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing and rendering them equal before God and the law. Look at this. The implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. When we live the way Jesus intended us to live, when we live under the kingship and the lordship of God, we begin to show such a glory of God. It starts to, to reflect off of us and, and, and the gaze of the people in the community around us move from us and their gaze lock on the extraordinary king of the kingdom of heaven. Our God, our Lord Jesus, and his Holy Spirit. The this is the place that people begin to say, yep, you know what? I would like my citizenship, my citizenship to be part of that kingdom. And it moves people. So I want to end today just by asking this question of you, a couple of questions. I want you to ask in a divided world right now, whole world, very divided. I want you to consider these questions as you go about your Memorial Day and you think about the servicemen and women who gave everything to protect the ideals of the, of the kingdom of the United States, which are amazing ideals. And again, we don't pull them off all the time. I want you to think about your citizenship and where ultimately your primary residency and your identity, what does is, what is your state ID actually say in your heart? So is your primary citizenship in the kingdom of God or in the United States? It's a question we need to wrestle with because there are going to be times when to be a follower of Jesus actually means that we're to continue to sacrifice, we're to continue to lay down our life, but we're not going to agree with the status quo, we're not going to agree with a policy decision. We may not agree with a whole treatment of a people group. And that's okay because our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. How about this one? Is your patriotism, is what you give allegiance to, your patriotism to the redemptive work of Jesus or a nationalism sort of pride? Wrestle with that one. Or this one, is your reverence for your King Jesus or to your favorite political candidate? I get really, really frustrated by this one. This one causes my blood to boil because if you are a follower of Jesus, then you don't get to put a political candidate, I don't care which one, in a seat of primacy over the Lord Jesus in your life and what he has called us to be and do and look like, okay? Your, your favorite has to be Jesus and everything else falls in line under the Lord Christ himself. Is your fervor, that is your enthusiasm and your excitement offered up on the political platform of a donkey 
or an elephant? Or is your fervor, your excitement, and your joy anchored and tethered to the Lion of Judah? Ask yourself that today as you go about living. Is your faith lodged in Western scientific advancement or in the creator of all, of everything, the smallest particle and the largest object? Are you going to put your system of belief on the creator of the universe, the God of heaven and earth? Or are you going to tether and anchor and let your entire uh, confidence in life be built in scientific advancement or the reason of man? That is a question to wrestle. That's a metaphysical question to wrestle with. Or is your ultimate allegiance to any governmental system societal construction or philosophical ideal or is it to the king of kings and the lord of lords and the prince of peace who lived and died for us i want to take just a minute and i want to i want to commemorate the ultimate sacrifice the ultimate soldier jesus christ himself who freely bravely served up and sacrificed his life for us so that we could come together as a united kingdom and live for him in these ideals. Let's look at this. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's in strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a well frame of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his 
God, I just, I just give you the rest of our Memorial Day weekend and I pray, God, that we would be so grateful to you that we would take time this weekend and we would commemorate and we would memorialize and we would think about the great sacrifices of the servicemen and women who have gone before us, who have given their lives for our freedom out of bravery and, and, and given us uh, so much to live for. And God, above and beyond all of that, we are grateful to you, our ultimate soldier, the one who went before us, who gave your life everything you had to give that we could live free, that we could be part of a beautiful citizenship in a kingdom that takes our breath away in a kingdom that fills us with joy to be a part of. God, today we give you this hour and I ask Lord that you would do your work to make this an incredible weekend that we would not forget. I pray these things in your name, Jesus, amen.